starting. Okay. We're rolling. We're rolling. Okay, we're good. Yes. All right, testing one, two. We're ready. We're rolling. So, hi, everybody. Um, we are here today, tonight, actually recording our, our very first podcast. Um, we thought that it was really important that we really join the world in having important conversations. Um, and I'm here with um, two amazing women. Um, my friend, um, Dr. McKinney, my friend, Sean, um, and I really sat down and talked about something that I, I thought was important, and that was talking to the community, sharing our wealth of knowledge, having real conversations with no filter. Right. So this evening, today, we welcome you to the very first podcast, No Filter, Black Women Talk Health. Um, and I'm super excited to, to have this conversation. Um, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. So, um, you know, we really felt like there was a, a bit of a void that uh, wasn't present consistently in podcasts that we were seeing that talked about uh, issues in the black community from a physician standpoint and really highlighted some of the things in real time that we see every day. So I am Sean McKinney. <laughs> I uh, am a, a native of New Orleans, Louisiana and a graduate of Xavier University of Louisiana. So uh, we are proud Xavierites and um, am a surgeon. So that is my uh, specialty and subspecialty is in breast surgery specifically. So I uh, treat women with breast disease, breast cancer, uh, and have done that for over 17 years. So um, I believe that certainly my perspective is unique. I've lived in several different parts of the country, um, been able to treat many different types of women and have many different experiences. And um, just grateful for this platform and being able to share this with my sister girl. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, who, you know, <laughs> we were two doors down from each other in St. Jill so dorm. <laughs> Indeed. So uh, it's just wonderful to be back home and just have a full circle. You know, you just never know those friends that you have in college, how you all will grow and then come back Absolutely. around, you know, after all the education and all the training, yeah. uh, how this will come back around where you can use it to further the community. So Absolutely. Yeah. It's, a, it's a lifetime, right? That's Xavier family. That's right. Um, so I, I am... I'm Dr. Tammy Kristen Terry Singleton, and I too am a very proud Xavier University alumna, and I am a pediatric hematologist oncologist. I stuck around um, here in New Orleans and went to med school at LSU, and I've lived in various parts of the country as well. Um, I trained in Miami and trained um, at Hopkins and at the NCI in Bethesda. Um, so I've had an opportunity to to experience different things professionally, came back to New Orleans uh, just before Hurricane Katrina, 
and primarily I've served as an academician um, within pediatric hematology oncology, both at LSU School of Medicine, then Tulane School of Medicine, and now um, sort of doing my own thing along with a pediatric subspecialty group. It's kind of how I reconnected with my friend here um, in, in Madison, Mississippi. I have a location here in, in Louisiana, in Slidell, so I drive a nice drive, and I put on a podcast, which is kind of where this thought came from, sort of, um, every morning, and you know, drive to a place where I have an opportunity to practice uh, medicine the way that I think that medicine should be practiced, and I work with a lot of great people with the Mississippi Center for Advanced Medicine, um, just amazing pediatric subspecialist, but I also have like a specialty within a specialty and I see a lot of adults, both children and, and adults with bleeding and clotting disorders. And especially now that I'm back home in Louisiana and in Seidel, I have an opportunity to really see um, what's happening in our communities, like some of the disparities with, within healthcare, um, some of the issues that are happening within our community with people of color, with black folks, um, with um, our Latino brothers and sisters. We actually have a pretty large indigenous community here in South Louisiana with Homa Indians, and I treat a large number of those folks as well. And um, I have a lot going on in my mind and a lot of things that I've seen, but nothing bigger than what we're about to talk about. And that's why I thought it was really important that we bring a big gun on um, mm -hmm. to the show for our, for our first time to really be a part of this conversation. And so I just want to take a few minutes and introduce um, Dr. Dana Labat to everybody. And we, we went back and forth, mm -hmm. I have to share, I want to be transparent, because I do this too. I told her, you know, we go back and forth about our long bio, our short bio. Right. <laughs> um, and I, have, I absolutely hate hearing my bio. I'm like, enough already, you know, that's enough. Um, but I told Dr. Labat that, um, I needed to read, the, I needed to go through the whole bio. Yes. Now, you know, I, I won't read it word for word, but I just have to share everything that's important about her. And, um, you know, Sean and I will certainly share um, more information and more details about ourselves as we go along. And, you know, we'll certainly publish our, our bios, but I have to introduce you to Dr. Labat appropriately. So... Um, Dr. Labat is actually a graduate of Fisk University, so, you know, fellow HBCU grad, um, but to beat, not only is she, I'm sure, a very proud graduate of Fisk University, she's Phi Beta Kappa, you know, and that's like a mouthful, that says something, right, when somebody tells you that they're, that they're Phi Beta Kappa, so she was inducted into the Phi Beta Kappa National Honor Society, and then she completed additional training and got her master's degree from Penn State University um, in media studies. And it doesn't, of course, stop there. She received her doctorate in clinical psychology from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center um, in, bi in biomedical science, a school of biomedical sciences. So she is a PhD, she's a clinical psychologist. Um, and just so proud to have her, have her here with us today. She has additional training um, with, in terms of her postdoctoral training in pediatric psychology, which then really propelled her into the position as a lead psychologist and psychological services manager at Children's Medical Center in Dallas. So she too has had significant experience in other areas of the country. She um, participated in an inpatient psychiatric unit and a center for eating disorders. She has a lot of experience. So even within that role, 
Um, she had numerous hospital departments that she worked with, including um, almost every specialty, neurology, GI, oncology, um, and, and, and many more. She has extensive leadership experience, uh, being the first nationally recognized certification or having the first nationally recognized certification for pediatric eating disorders by the Joint Commission. Um, and that, that says a lot. She then sort of trans transitioned her expertise from the hospital setting to the community setting. And she, she opened a private practice in Dallas um, and really concentrated on providing therapies, both individual and groups, um, and group therapy with adolescents and adults. And she focused on eating disorders, anorexia, bulimia, binge eating. But she also treated patients, of course, with depression, anxiety, a lot of couples therapy, relationship repair. And then she had specific training in perinatal mental health um, from the Postpartum Support International um, to support women and or couples experiencing infertility, pregnancy loss, um, other mood or anxiety disorders. And I was like, listen, it's important that you hear you know, her, her real full experience. So she is both licensed in Louisiana and Texas as a clinical psychologist. She currently maintains a very, very, very active private practice here in the city of New Orleans, um, where she works with clients across the state as well as patients um, from Texas and like most of us um, here in Louisiana, she's probably serving patients from you know, the, the entire south, southwest, kind of south central region. Her additional areas of specialty also include, of course, adolescents and adults with everyday life stressors, women's emotional health across the lifespan, including, remember, reproductive health and pregnancy loss, she also participates, I learned a lot today, this, this mm -hmm. evening, uh, with BIPOC mm -hmm. and LGBTQ communities therapeutically. Um, she conducts psychological and psychoeducational assessments, which are so important for the kids and adults in our community in terms of life, learning style differences, um, really to clarify what's happening within, within our community. She is a highly, highly sought after speaker in general but especially in areas of anti-racism, um, mindfulness within BIPOC communities, coping with racial trauma, and living a healthy lifestyle. She serves as a national consultant and content developer for a digital weight loss program that serves over 50,000 individuals across the United States. I mean, that's a... Yes. That's impressive, right? Exactly. And Dr. Babat is the perfect person and so honored that she agreed to join us. And she's not old either. Oh, no. <laughs> no. Look, and, and, and on top of that, look, yes, all of that. Yes. She's accomplished a lot yes, in, her, in, her, in her young life. So <laughs> lot, lots more to go, right? <laughs> so we have a hot topic, and we really pressed the button on, on having this conversation because... Um, as we sit here, all three of us, HBCU grads, and especially Sean and myself, um, we're very proud Xavier alumnas, right? Like, right. it's uh, our alumni. Like, we're, we're yeah, in it. We are. And so this is, this is something we want to present. We want to talk about it. We want to be fair and balanced. But you got to hear this, right. right? You have to hear um, what was released in early September from the presidents of Xavier and Dillard University here in New Orleans. So I am going to uh, read the letter that came out. And I 
you know, I don't have any kids, you know, yet that are in college, but as an alumnus, this came across the Xavier timeline uh, on Facebook. So um, the letter was just not only sent out to who I'm going to say it's addressed to, but um, someone sent it out on Facebook and all it was the, on every, the official Xavier the official, Facebook way website. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. So here, here's what it is. It said, Dear students, staff, and faculty of Dillard and Xavier Universities, our communities have been hit hard by the COVID-19 pandemic with harrowing consequences for the lives and health of our fellow citizens. Overcoming the virus will require the availability of vaccines effective for all peoples in our communities, especially our black and brown neighbors. Phase three vaccine trials have begun across the nation, including in New Orleans. It is of the utmost importance that a significant number of black and brown subjects participate so that the effectiveness of these vaccines be understood across the many diverse populations that comprise these United States. We, the presidents of Dillard and Xavier, are already participating in the Ochsner Medical System's current vaccine trial. As part of the study, we have received our injections and have been monitoring and reporting any symptoms and side effects. Upon our enrollment, we were fully informed and any possible risks that would exclude us from the study were disclosed. We are both well. We appeal to the students, faculty, staff, and alumni of Dillard, Xavier, and our sibling institutions to consider participating in this trial or others being conducted. The people and communities we serve look to us as an example. Our participation in such studies will help find ways to better fight the pandemic. As presidents of HBCUs, we do recall the unethical examples of medical research. We remember the Tuskegee syphilis study, which misused and caused harm to African-Americans and other people of color, undermining trust in health providers and caretakers. Today, there are many regulations in place to assure the ethical execution of medical studies including oversight by human subjects committees with diverse membership and participation of clinicians of color. Two of the leading physicians are Dr. Julia Garcia Diaz and Yvins Laborde. We hope that you will consider enrolling and then they give an email to send to uh, covidvaccine at ashner.org or leave a message. Uh, We have before us a significant opportunity to serve and advance the cause for not just ourselves, but our sisters and brothers suffering from the effects of this virus on their families and communities. And it's signed by both presidents. So. (laughs) I'm almost levitating from my seat right now, but I'm going to let Sean, I'm going to let you go ahead and go first and. So I I think that, you know, when I first read the letter, I was uh, I was shocked. I think probably shocked was the best way to put it. And then I got mad and and then I was kind of triggered because 
Okay, nobody knows, but I had told Tammy, I said, maybe I'm triggered because I'm in the middle of reading this book called <laughs> Medical Apartheid <laughs> by Harriet Washington. So this is a wonderful book. It, it, it gives chronological history of the, um, the ways in which from the beginning, the medical industry in this country have basically sacrificed um, brown and black bodies uh, for the sake of money, status, power, position, all of those things um, without consent or compassion or, or any of this. So I realized that I could have been triggered because this book, like I had to have to put down several times because a lot of times I just can't take the content of it and the imagining of, you know, this being done to our people. Um, and everybody quotes the syphilis study, but there, you know, that's kind of the trigger thing that most people talk about. But to me, there was so much done before the syphilis study and even stuff done after the syphilis study, you know, that um, just uh, used us as pawns for experiments. I mean, when you talk about people in institutions, there were prison studies being done on prisoners and, you know, um, mental institutions, things where we did not have advocacy for ourselves uh, or in a position to say, no, um, I don't want this or that. I, so that was one thing that just triggered me in the sense that to send out a letter without a um, conversation, without a whole um, very comprehensive way in which to approach and present this to your own community was something that I felt um, was lacking, mm -hmm. was, was very lacking. I think that, you know, to do this should have been approached much more systematically um, with a lot more thought and planning and information uh, to not only the students but parents um, because I can't imagine my student getting a letter like this at, at the institution they're matriculating <laughs> at and kind of um, being taken aback uh, by that. So, you know, all of, all of these thoughts are in my head as I think of getting that. And that's even to not even to say that <laughs> as a medical professional, you know, we do research all the time now. Certainly we want us to be included in studies because we have been you know excluded from studies systematically a lot of the things in uh, that are quoted studies that we quote in percentages don't have a robust amount of african americans or any other people of color in them to make very broad strokes about how they'll do disease-wise with one treatment or another but um I think that in this time, with this administration, with this amount of uncertainty 
with the, the medical community, just the amount of information that's being given or lack thereof about what's going on, this was not the time to participate um, to me. <laughs> it just was not the time. There was, there's a lot of, a lot going on from the national standpoint, you know, what the CDC puts out and, and how that's regulated now. All that stuff is kind of not as it was. Mm-hmm. And to me, can't be totally trusted. Mm-hmm. So those are like my initial, just, you know, gut, yeah, reaction. Well, um, you know, I'll say, I, I understood when I read the letter, what their intentions were. I said immediately, I said, you know, um, I love both universities and I hold both presidents in very high esteem. And I said, I know that their intentions are noble. Mm-hmm. I absolutely know. And, and I believe it. Right. But I think that they really missed the mark on this one. And they missed an opportunity. Um, and let me explain what I mean by they missed an opportunity. As a hematologist-oncologist... Almost 80% of what I do is within the framework of a clinical trial. And so I have served on many, many studies as a principal investigator, as a co-investigator, a sub-investigator, even written protocols. But I am also a physician and I am also black. And I completely understand and remember my family sitting at the table going, remember Tuskegee. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go too far to remember Tuskegee because I heard someone refer to the Tuskegee experiment um, that it was an experiment that was conducted on black men in the 1930s without their consent. But what wasn't said in addition to that was that this Tuskegee experiment did not end right. until the 1970s. Right. Right. So we're not talking about something that happened you know, many, many years ago. In addition to that, we're also not, not acknowledging or failing to acknowledge the ongoing issues and inherent racism and systemic racism and mistrust, um, lack of confidence that many people of color have within our medical community. Like this is, this is, this is a gaping, huge wound yes. that barely had a scab on it. Right. And you're coming along and you're wanting to have a conversation about something that's important and you're doing it in the form of a letter and you're doing it in the form of a letter. And I want to point out that the letter was addressed to the students, faculty and, and staff, staff. Yes. of Xavier University. It was not addressed to the community. It was not addressed to the alumni. It was you're talking to our kids who are at the school. And you're talking to the faculty and staff. And so there's so many different reasons why this went wrong. Although, again, the intentions were absolutely noble. Here are a few facts. Do we need black people, indigenous people, 
Latino people, Pacific Islanders? Do we need all people of color to participate in clinical trials? Absolutely we do. But you're going to be hard-pressed to get people of color to participate in clinical trials without presenting them information in a way that is clear, that um, they feel respected, they feel regarded, they feel acknowledged, and then you establish a trust. Right. A mutual trust where you can have a conversation and they can embrace what you're presenting. Without doing that, what, you, what you're seemingly doing is you're contributing to the exploitation of these groups. Now, I absolutely know that President Verrett, mm-hmm. I know that he didn't intend to do that. All right. All right. I absolutely know the president of Dillard University, the president of Xavier University had no intention of exploiting anybody. They wanted to help. They wanted to make a statement. They knew that people of color did not participate in clinical trials because of our history. They also knew that coronavirus, SARS-2, COVID-19, affected us in a disproportionate way. Right. They understood those facts, like that more of us died. And I have some facts pulled up here just looking at COVID-19. Now we have well over, well over 220,000 deaths in the continental United States. It is an embarrassing fact. And of those 220,000 deaths, in terms of the mortality rates, black people, indigenous people, Latin people, Pacific Islanders represent most of those. Again, in a very disproportionate way. Now, I do want to point out this one fact that sometimes when people say that they don't mention, just in case for whoever's listening to this, um, our Caucasian or white counterparts, y'all getting it too. Sure. So we're dying at a higher rate in comparison to uh, our makeup in the population meaning how, how many of us exist in the continental United States. But when you look at the raw numbers, mm-hmm. white folks are right behind us in terms of, if not right at us, in terms of the number of deaths. Right. So it's not that just people of color are dying. dying. I just want to make that clear. Right. I don't want to digress too far, but I just always want to go, I don't think that people make that clear enough. But I just think that for something that was so important, the reason why... There was such a visceral response. I mean, I tell you it was visceral. I mean, it was a visceral response coming from Facebook, from parents especially. And the reason why you felt you described it so eloquently triggered is because, I mean, this was an exploitation that, by the way, hasn't completely ended, right? There's been no significant acknowledgement of, of it. And the wound is gaping. And it's almost like a cycle, right? Because you have that. So because we have that, and again, going back to your point, we don't participate in clinical trials when we should have a seat at the table. We We need to have the advantage of understanding the efficacy and safety of everything that we're eventually going to take. I want to point that out. We're eventually going to take these products, right? When they go through clinical trial, they're going to be available to all people of color, but yet you weren't represented in the initial, in the initial studies 
to know if it was safe and effective for, for you. you. Yeah. Right? But I, I think, Tammy, I think the broader context here, just to interject too, is you're talking about, um, you know, that there is in perhaps an assumption made when writing the letter, you know, the assumption made that, yes, of course, this is really important. It needs to be done. But without the recognition, and, and it's fine to have a paragraph or two that talks about the Tuskegee experiment. But as, as you guys stated, you know, our history is a history where our body is not our own. Right? right. And that and that that is quoted by Harriet Washington in that book, in yes. the, the book of Medical Apartheid that you guys mentioned. You know, that consistent perception that not only is our body not our own, but also we are left completely in the dark about what the process is. And so the conversation has to be had first. That's right. You know, about, so what are we asking? What is the ask of us and how could this potentially be helpful? Not in the, not in the perhaps format of a letter, but perhaps in the format of ongoing groups and discussions, because we often need to process what experiences we've had. We also need to understand what it is we don't know. So there's an expectation, you know, you need to do this. The expectation is, is that you're being voluntold in a way to participate without asking the community, please, let's talk about your fears first. Yes. If we can talk about your fears first, then we can start to allay those fears. And then we can start to address why it is so important for you to participate. You know, I think about, um, and, and again, you guys know better than I do in terms of doing these types of FDA clinical trials, but you know, there's research done on how there've been exceptions to informed consent. That's right. And the majority of true. The majority of um, clinical trials that have used that exception disproportionately represent people of color in those trials. So that has to be part of the conversation. So yes, the FDA is doing work to change that, but that was back in 1996. We're in 29, I mean, 20, 2019, we're in 2020. That wasn't very long ago. You know, so I think if if we're going to change the conversation and change the context, then we have to start talking about how the historical trauma that we've experienced as a people, where our bodies are not our own, and we are trying to reclaim that, and how we're experiencing current racial trauma and what that's doing to impact us. If we don't have those conversations now, then we're not, gonna, we're not going to get the participation at all. So these leaders, which is, it's wonderful to start, you know, but these leaders, I think, have to recognize what role they can actually play in moving us forward. Right. And I, and I think that, to me, this sets us back, you know, because I can only think that uh, because of the way this was presented, that you know, that wall, that fear, that mistrust uh, goes right back up. That's right. <laughs> you know, it it allows us to, you know, to certainly not trust what's going on in the medical communi community, even from those who look like us, even from, sure. you know, from Tammy and mm -hmm. I, who may be trying to 
you know, set some, someone up in our own clinical trials or, or something like that and that we sit and spend the time with patients. But if, if you're hearing, you know, still about this kind of stuff going on, then you certainly won't trust your own when your own didn't have the, um, didn't take the time to really set this up in a way mm-hmm. that would be successful, not just from the trial standpoint, but from the mental, just, you know, from the mental aspect of the community to show the community that we do not mean harm. Mm-hmm. This is safe. Mm-hmm. This is why it is safe. Mm-hmm. This is what the research has shown. Like none of that was brought out. You know well, what? and I think to your point, there's a difference between, I think people assume that diversity equals equity and it doesn't. Right. Surely. <laughs> right. So we can have, we can have faces that represent or that look like us, but if we're not talking about you know, uh, the information needed and the education that needs to go along with this work, then it doesn't matter if your face looks like mine. If you're practicing under the same system or have bought into the same system, then it's going to still <laughs> impact us, yeah. right? Yeah. In a way. And it actually might even be more traumatizing because we are the carriers, right? We are actually engaging in trying to get people to come in and, and, and indoctrinate them into the same system that has harmed them. And that's a problem. That's a problem. You know, Dr. Wright, look, look I, I, I want to take this, I want to take this back mm-hmm. um, to try to simplify a question or a concept. So I sort of feel like there's some communications that will never be successful mm-hmm. if I try to have them in an email, a letter, a text message. Like it's, sure. it, it, there's, there's never going to be a way that that can be effectively communicated because the topic is too deep, is mm-hmm. too heavy, is too big, is too hard. And I, so I want to just kind of throw out there with, with the, Emotional trauma that people of color have suffered within the healthcare community, within the context of clinical trials, as we all acknowledge, and they acknowledge as well. Do you think that this is something that we could have, that anyone, pardon me, could have effectively had a conversation about or written a letter about? I mean, I I don't think through a letter, but I, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think that the impersonal aspect of a letter cannot be a substitute for the amount of actual work that would have to happen in order for this to have been successful. successful. And it yeah. should have been planned for way ahead of time. Like, okay, the letter came out in September, but we knew that we were disproportionately dying months before that. We knew uh-huh. that you know, um, a vaccine was forthcoming whenever it would come. So, you know, to begin the conversation... Where were the conversations? Where, yeah, like, well, where were the conversations? 
to begin the open conversations Station. to the community. We don't know what back conversations were made. There are always some back conversations, you know, but, but to begin the open conversation ahead of time um, with the black community, you know, updating them on the vaccines, updating them on the efficacy and safety, updating, you know, where things are. I think that sets you up more for success than just coming out with, hey, here's this vaccine. I took it and I'm okay. You should take it too. It's... Yeah, I think, yeah, go ahead. I I really, I want to hear what you have to say about this too, Dana. Like this is. I think there's, you know, I think here's the thing. I think that this, even though perhaps initially it's a missed opportunity, you know, I think there are so many opportunities that continue to present as a result of this letter coming out. Because here's the thing. You have two very well-intentioned people who know that in order for us to all be helped, right? Our, our communities of color to be helped, hopefully, right? And again, you guys are the physicians, but right. to be helped, that participation is, is really important. And so missteps are made all, all along the way. I think there's an opportunity for conversations with, you know, based in collaboration with community. You know, if we think about those three things, there's an opportunity to say, wow, okay, we we really think it's important. Perhaps we made a misstep in terms of how we wanted to convey this information. Mm-hmm. Let's open the conversation up to explore what the impact was. And I think to your point earlier, to have the letter be directed at faculty, staff, and students you're missing a whole right there. You're missing the parents. Right you're missing the, the larger community. Right I'm thinking if my forgot if my child got a letter, yes. you know, about some about participation, I'm thinking, you know, if I have an 18-year-old, I don't have an 18-year-old, but if I had an 18-year-old, I'm thinking that's still a kid. At yes. least in my eyes. Yes. So to make an informed decision about participating in a clinical trial that could impact your health requires much more conversation. And it's opening the door to say, okay, we think this is important. This is why we think it's important, but we understand, we can understand why this is a painful experience, right? This conversation can be a painful one. So how can we start having them to really create consensus and create trust and also then to address those fears? So if they, if hopefully Xavier and Dillard attempted, what they could do is open it up to the larger community, start having focused or town halls to discuss this, you know, on Dillard's campus, on Xavier's campus, at local, I mean, at Suno's campus, Mm -hmm. at UNO's campus, I mean, everywhere. Yeah. You can have community town halls to really start having the conversation about why are we reluctant? And again, to your point, it's not just the Tuskegee experiment. It is nothing about Jordan crew and post-traumatic slave syndrome. Yeah. We are, we have long experienced, you know, the impact of our bodies being hijacked yes. long. And that, that, that is not just uh, um, an analytical or logical experience that is now in our DNA. Right. So if we don't, that and start talking about it and try to find ways to heal, mm-hmm. then 
you can write 15 letters. It doesn't matter. Right. I'm still say no. Yeah. <laughs> you're right. But you know what? I, I, but I think you really, you really helped me to understand something just a second ago. Um, I'm going back to, again, the visceral response. I mean, yes. if you yes. take a look at that Facebook page, go to that Xavier University Facebook page where the, the letter, the, it's over almost 2,000 shares you wow. know, from people on the page. The comments, I mean, although there were some comments in favor of clinical trials in general, many of the comments were very, very emotional. And it felt to me when I was reviewing the comments, it felt to me like it was um, like a wound that was, again, not healed and being reopened. It it felt like a further exploitation. And with what you just said, because you are seemingly including and addressing what we feel as parents would still be a vulnerable population, the students, right. yeah. 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 and not having a bigger conversation, and then this comes out in a letter, this is the re- only one of the reasons why it was a missed opportunity and why it was received in the way it was received. Again, now to your point, some people were going to say no, no matter what, because it's just woven into our DNA. But you also had an opportunity to open the conversation, to have the conversations, Mm -hmm. and I just don't think that was ever going to happen in a letter, and it certainly wasn't going to happen in a letter that you sent to my kid. No. So I have... But you know, I think think here's, here's the thing to think about. I also think that it almost it almost had to happen maybe not this way but it almost had to happen perhaps for their eyes to be opened to wow we we didn't get it we get it now at least that's my hope we get it now we get it now that we've got we have to be very sensitive in terms of how we approach you know this sort of issue we know and again you you could hear the urgency in the letter yeah. right so they're, they've got their own. They're bringing to the table their own emotional experience. Like, we've got to do this. Yeah. So as a result, though, as a result of this kind of having to happen in a way to, to have this conversation start really going viral, you know, and having parents chime in and community members chime in and people saying, wait, hold up. Mm-hmm. What about this? What about that? What about my child? What about, you know, this... Uh, I just, I mean, I, I still, I'm a little surprised, Stu, that it was just faculty, staff, and students. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. exactly. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm a little surprised by that. And again, missteps happen all the time. I believe that we're human and we have the opportunity to grow and learn from these experiences. Mm-hmm. And I'm just hoping, I'm hoping that through the experience of being able to see and really have the Facebook comments blow it wide open. And people bring their emotional experience to say, we we are still a community suffering. We're still a community Mm -hmm. suffering from the wounds of the past, Mm -hmm. right? That are still perpetuated by systems that still exist. And so if we can, if we can start that healing process by having those conversations, having educators not just say, well, I'm running the trial, right? Mm -hmm. It's one thing to say, this person is a person of color who's running the trial. It's another thing to say, the person who's running this trial is considering 
all of the experience is of the past that, that uh, BIPOC community members have experienced, because it's not just black people who have been exploited Thank you. in community yeah. problems, yeah. right? It's, it's whole groups of people. I know in this particular instance, these are two HBCU presidents who talked about it, but this is an ongoing systemic issue that faces you know, a, va a majority of our population. All right. And so we've got to start bringing in the conversations about the emotional turmoil the historic trauma that we experience, pairing that with the racial trauma, addressing the emotions in a way that people can feel validated, mm -hmm. right? Because some people, it's like you push back and then it feels like an invalidation. Well, you're right. a person of color. Why aren't you participating? Right. right. They, you should participate. You're like, well, what's wrong with me? <laughs> why don't I want to, why am I not going through that risk? Right. So if you feel, but if, but if those, if those leaders, right, if the leaders can, work to validate people's experiences, then I'm telling you, the change that could occur, right, from that kind of healing would actually allow people to, to engage much more and know that they have some power, okay? Because that's the other part of it. This is a message saying, this is what you should be doing. Well, where's my power? How, right. Right. That's, that's, that's and and you talked about, you know, you touched on something that during this time, you know, when people, talk about, you know, not just us, when you said it's not just us who have been exploited. I mean, look at what has happened recently on the border to young women having yes. sterilization, suspected procedures and yes. stuff. You know, I'm Again, looking at that. Ongoing exploitation. Ongoing going exploita exploitation. With those who don't know the language, who don't have a voice, who don't have advocacy, who don't have, you know, and I am looking at this right now, this year, and saying, oh my goodness, this is the same it's stuff. It's almost unfathomable, <laughs> but you know that it's happening. Yes. But it's, it's happening in, right, in yeah. present day. It's yes. happening all the time. So I, I want to I wanna interject this and say this, mm -hmm. you know. Again, I keep going back to opportunity missed. Yeah. So here we are with incredibly brilliant, energetic, amazing young people and, and their families, mm -hmm. right? So not just them, but and their families. Right. How about providing an opportunity in the name of medical education, and certainly, you know, myself as an academician, how about educating those young people and their families about what really happened? Let's talk about the, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Let's talk right. about it. Let's get some good education, like medical apartheid. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Right. Let's talk about what happened. But... Let's also talk about the reforms mm -hmm. and the changes within, yeah. within clinical research right. that happened as a result. Let's provide some information and education about the clinical trial process. Right. About, yeah. phase, about preclinical trials, animal studies, phase one, phase two, phase, phase three. three. Right. What we're studying, we're looking at safety, we're looking at efficacy, and... A couple of things, how important it is that people of color have a seat at that table. However, providing is what you mentioned. Let's talk about 
real informed consent. Right. Because now we're providing you with the information to make an informed decision to participate in this clinical trial. You understand the risks. You understand the potential benefits you know, that you're making to society, to yourself, that you really give them an opportunity to understand, understand it, it and not to be exploited. Right. Like, listen, yes. we're going to educate you about our history. We're going to educate you about this process because we want you to participate, but we want you to participate being educated. And we want you to go in and do it and do it right. We're not going to allow you to be exploited, but at the same time, we want you to understand how important it is that you understand this, embrace it, and then once you get it, you decide to either participate or not. Or not. Yeah. But there's no exploitation that is going to happen here. We're going to stop it here because as HBCUs, that is what we stand for. And one of the things, is the last thing I'll say for a second, that I was disappointed with is that prestigious universities like Xavier University and Dillard University produce more black medical professionals than any other institution in the country, especially with them collectively, looking yeah. at them here in the city of New Orleans. Yeah. Look, nurses, public health professionals, Your doctors, pharmacists, pharmacists amazing program. got a whole program. pharmacy school there. Exactly. <laughs> so we have leaders yeah. in clinical research mm -hmm. Who did you really sit down and consult before you decided to write the letter, again, with noble intentions, but perhaps we missed the opportunity to have those conversations, provide education, and empower these young people and their families so they would not be exploited and benefit from participating in clinical trials from a virus that could kill us all. Right. It was and, this. And certainly with that knowledge, you know, young people can inform their family. That's right. You know, you empower you empower families. them to tell their mo their mothers and fathers, their aunts and uncles to understand about, the process, right. right? You stop the cycle of exploitation, but they felt further exploited. Well, I think I think here's the issue. I think this is a problem that comes up in uh, institutions of higher learning as well. The problem is is that there there are assumptions made, okay, about what it is that you understand. Hmm. And instead of saying what is it that you understand about clinical trials, right, <laughs> asking the question, posing it as a question, it becomes an assumption. I'm I, I'm a psychologist. I've done research, I've published a dissertation, that, but guess what? If I'm an English major, mm -hmm. I don't know anything about clinical trials. Right. If I am- You, you don't know, know what phase three I'm means on that letter? <laughs> that? So you don't know what phase three means on that letter? I have no idea. Yeah. And, and I think that the assumption is made that the education has been done or was had. Mm -hmm. And that that's the miss that's missing the mark because if you're talking to students who are in um film and television, mm -hmm. they don't know what the hell a clinical trial is. <laughs> right. Right? That's right. They, don't, they don't understand how it works. So I think I think that's also part of the issue is you have to ask, you've got to meet people where they are. Mm -hmm. And if you meet people where they are, then there you go. You can have somebody that thinks a clinical trial is you know, you test it on rabbits. That's what you do. That's what you do first, right? 
you know, people don't fully understand that whole process. You two both know it, know it very well, but there's so many other people who don't. So if you start by meeting people where they are and getting an understanding, then you know from what, which point to start the education. Right, right. Maybe yeah. education is just how you sign up. Mm -hmm. Do you go to a website? Are you supposed to log in somewhere? Right. Do you go to a place and tell somebody you're interested? What is a, are they going to give me an injection? <laughs> right. What's a placebo? All right. of that stuff. All of that information. So if a student, if a student, I, I go back to this, but you can be an, a professor in, you can be a faculty member in the IT department. Right. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, so you've got to understand your entire population. Who is my audience? Mm -hmm. Who's my audience? Who am I talking to? How can I, how can I tap into that, meet them where they are so I can pr provide a safe space to give them the education that they need. Mm -hmm. The education with the pharmacy school is going to be very different than it is with the creative writing department. Right, right, right. You know? right. So I think that, that also perhaps is a missed mark, but an opportunity for the two presidents to go back and say, well, we've, we've got our own learning to do. And if we can learn from this missed mark, then perhaps we can actually lead the conversation in a different way. And we can be vulnerable. We can show that, look, we don't know everything either. Right. You know, it'd be really terrible if they didn't. I hope they do. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, I, it's almost like when we, when we saw the letter, we almost wanted to do the podcast immediately because yeah. we had such a reaction to it. We were, all like fired up and emotional, but I think, unfortunately for me, the um, the lengthiness of us doing it, I was hoping that during this time something else would have yeah. come mm -hmm. up and happened so that there would have been some backing up and kind of a whoa, we're gonna rectify this. I have yet to see that, mm -hmm. and that disappoints me. You know, from that standpoint, I don't see addressing the backlash, although there was someone else that you may want to read um, somebody else was talking about, because this made national news. Oh, this made, this made, this made mean, national news. Yeah, this was headlines. There have been right. many articles written in, yeah. res in response to this. And, and I, thought it, I thought that was like, okay, well, somebody going to say something yeah. else, right? Right. <laughs> Uh, I want mm. them to go back and con and control the narrative and mm -hmm. and 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 really do the right thing in terms of providing education so that we stop the exploitation mm -hmm. and we provide education that can lead to informed consent and increased participation. Right. That is what that is what I would like to see, and I think that we could probably talk about this all day, all night. Um, I hope that this will be just one of many different conversations that, that, and maybe we can have additional conversations, you know, after this, um, other conversations with other folks, but I guess if I have any final thoughts, I would want to say, I hope that president Kimbrough, who I absolutely admire and respect, I hope that president Barrett of my beloved alma mater will take this opportunity 
to really embrace the true Xavier University and Dillard University community. And that includes not just the students, not just the faculty members, not just the staff, but that includes our entire community by making a commitment to education, to stop the exploitation, and to help us get real informed consent and participation with not only the group of students, but as you mentioned, the professors in the IT department, in the English department, and everywhere else that may not completely understand this process, but we really look at it as an opportunity. So that's what I would have to say kind of in, yeah. in closing. I don't know if you guys yeah. have anything. I couldn't say it better. Yeah. I mean, that's. I agree. I agree. They so, yep. So I guess till next time. We have to have oh, another conversation. What's the name of? Oh yes. So we we did say that we <laughs> want to add like a fun a fun part, um, but important part to our podcast, right? That's we, right. We said that we absolutely um, we're gonna have a glass of wine while we're having this conversation. So it's typically gonna be in the evening, uh-huh. <laughs> um, and then we are going to try to highlight as much as possible um, minority-owned wineries. Distilleries. Um, women, distilleries, people yeah. of color. Um, you know, this one tonight, we'll just say and this is an equal opportunity podcast. I don't know, you know, exactly where this particular bottle of wine. Um, Although the name, the name kind of fits with what Paso, you know, Paso no, Raboles. True, oh, oh, true myth. You know, the it's name called of the wine. True myth. <laughs> and, and not just that. The name of the, the bottle of wine on the front, it says, Her Secret is Patience. And it's a 2016 True Myth Cabernet Sauvignon Blanc. Oh, sorry, not Sauvignon Sauvignon. Blanc, but Cabernet Sauvignon. Mm -hmm. So this is a red wine. Yes. So Cabernet Sauvignon, and it is a Paso, is it Raboles? Yes. Is that how you would say that? So True Myth. There we go. That's what we're drinking tonight. No filter, True Myth. (laughs) (laughs) Till next time. Thank you so much, Dr. Lobot. Thank you. My, my friend, Dr. McKinney. Pleasure to join you. Absolute pleasure. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Till next time. Till next time. Bye, guys. <laughs>